This is a podcast from meow.net. M-I-A-A-W dot net. Meow! Welcome to Genuine Inquiry, a monthly series of audio essays, each of which interrogates a topic close to our hearts. Hello and welcome to Genuine Inquiry. My name's Owen Kelly and today I'm asking a question I've been asking for a decade or more. I want to ask what we mean by virtual reality and I'm asking this because of all the recent furore about the metaverse and Facebook's decision to rename itself Meta and to claim it's no longer a social media company, but is in fact dedicated to advancing the arrival of the metaverse. And I want to ask what this means for us, and I want to do this by looking at some of the tools, analytical tools, we were left by the American logician and philosopher Charles Sanders Peirce. I want to ask what we usually mean by the term virtual reality, and what we might mean by it. And I want to ask whether this makes sense either as a simple description, a label for something we can experience in some way, or as a more complex sign pointing us towards something that's uh, not yet been revealed. And to make sense of some of this, I'm going to draw upon some aspects of the research that I conducted during an eight-year experiment in the early years of this century in the so-called virtual world Second Life. That formed the basis of my doctoral thesis, and I put a link to that thesis, which you can download free, on the Meow website as part of the notes for this podcast. Okay, so I want to start with an analogy. I want to look at a simple example that approaches the concept of the phaneron, as defined by Charles Sanders Peirce. I'll explain what the phaneron is in a minute. And this example revolves around the sensory apparatus of the Philippine tarsia and the common mouse. Now, Philippine tarsias are one of the tiniest primates known to scientists, and they use ultrasound for communication, and their calls have been documented at upwards of 90 kilohertz. Human hearing, just to remind you, is usually estimated at between 20 hertz and 20 kilohertz. Tarsiers pass along information on the whereabouts of insects without any interference from lower frequency background noise. At the same time, their extreme high pitch makes their calls almost impossible for predators to hear. Mice have traditionally appeared to humans as almost silent. However, they can produce and hear sounds at a range of between 1 kHz and 70 kHz. They cannot hear the lower ranges of human communication, but we do not appear completely silent to them. And recent research has shown that far from being silent, as people had previously thought, mice communicate a lot, but usually at pitches far higher than the human ear can hear. Charles Sanders Peirce defined the phaneron as the sum total of all that is imagined, felt, thought, desired, or that either colours or governs what we feel or think is in some sense before the mind. We learn from our knowledge of mice and tarsiers that the phaneron of any creature in its totality has non-negotiable limits. All that's imagined by me may change, develop, expand as I learn and grow. 
No amount of growth, however, can give me direct access to the life world of mice, because the differences in our sensory apparatus prevent any hope of answering the question, what is it like to be a mouse or a tarsier? I cannot access their phaneron, even figuratively, in the way I can access, to different extents, the life worlds of my family, my friends, the human population of Earth, and perhaps even household pets like cats and dogs. Peirce refers to this set of limitations as synoscopy. He states that the sort of science that's founded upon the common experience of all men was recognised by Jeremy Bentham under the name of synoscopy, in opposition to idioscopy, which discovers new phenomena. Synoscopy relies on phenomena we already know or can readily directly observe, while idioscopy gathers new knowledge through extending our senses with implements, with media or tools. Idioscopic knowledge does not arise from direct knowledge. It's the indirect result of inquiry into that which we cannot experience directly. It enables us to describe the differences, for example, in the sensory apparatus of different species, but it does not give us experiential access to the phaneron of those species. Now I'm starting with this illustration because I think when we label some sorts of experience virtual reality, we ought to raise questions about why we think that label is appropriate. In doing so, we ought to be aware of claiming a senoscopic status for something we ought more properly to regard as idioscopic. So, what might we mean by reality? One of the primary features of reality lies in the fact that you cannot withdraw consent from it. Another in the fact that you cannot step outside it to examine it. Reality carries on whether you like it or not. In Peirce's words, if an object is of whatever character I or any person or persons will have it to be or imagine it, it is a fiction. But if its characters are independent of what you or I or any number of people think about it, it is a reality. What might we mean then by the phrase virtual reality? Let me point to Peirce again. He describes the meaning of virtual very clearly. He says, virtual, followed by any common noun, makes a phrase which denotes anything which, while it's not actually whatever the noun is, has nevertheless the characteristic behaviour and properties of that noun. We should see virtual reality then as something that, while not actually reality, nonetheless has the characteristic behaviour and properties of reality. Note here, though, that we necessarily enter a virtual reality with our current sensory apparatus, our phaneron as it stands at that moment, for the simple reason that we possess no other. Once there, if virtual reality offers what it promises, we should find that we cannot withdraw consent nor step outside, that we can in fact find no outside into which we might step. Now clearly this kind of virtual reality doesn't exist and may never exist. All current virtual reality exists at some level as a consensual illusion. All current virtual reality has an easily remembered outside to which we can readily return. We can, however, imagine how this kind of all-encompassing virtual reality might appear to us. It would lie somewhere between the holodeck on Star Trek, the next generation, 
and the world depicted in the Matrix movies. With this in mind, let us borrow two terms from artificial intelligence research. Let's call this theoretical form of virtual reality strong VR, and let us accept that it doesn't yet exist, and may never exist. However, while strong VR doesn't exist, what we might call weak VR certainly does, and has done in different forms for a longer time than we might realise. Weak VR has a history that begins with the telegraph and extends past Skype into so-called virtual worlds such as Second Life. It serves a different social function to that aimed at by advocates of strong VR. In his book The Great Good Place, the urban sociologist Ray Oldenburg suggested that the communal importance of third places, which are neither home nor work, these, he said, provide neutral territory in which conversation and social interaction play a main role. Manuel Castells, Howard Rangel, Charles Sukup and Sherry Turkle, among many others, have suggested in recent decades we've watched third places moving online and becoming virtual. Arguably, virtual third places began with the invention of Morse code and the machinery needed to use it to send messages at a distance. We can see a historical move from telephones as virtual third places to online chat rooms and forums, moving on to mobile phones, Skype and weak VR in the form of massive multiplayer online role-playing games, and indeed virtual worlds like Second Life. Each of these draws the user out of the real world and into an imaginary environment where they can interact with others. As these tools evolve, they've generated an increasing sense of immersion, and the third place itself becomes sensed as an increasingly present aesthetic space. We might now want to reconsider virtual reality from a different starting point. Can we see it as a descriptive term, as a sign, or should we see it as something different? The phrase virtual reality has, in my view, much in common with the term cyberspace that was popular 15 years or so ago. This too described something that hadn't yet arrived and attempted to depict it as something out there, an external place we could enter and explore. The author Dan Hunter wrote that cyberspace was once thought to be the modern equivalent of the Western frontier, a place where land was free for the taking, where explorers could roam and communities could form with their own rules. It was seen as an endless expanse of space, open, free and replete with possibility. This usage constituted a deliberate ploy by people who wanted us to approach the internet as though it had geography in a literal sense, as though it existed as a new continent where we could establish ourselves and learn to live, as though cyberspace had been discovered rather than invented. The term cyberspace offered a cleverly designed metaphor that masqueraded as an innocent description. The term virtual reality serves as an equally cleverly designed marketing term, offering something apparently external and almost real, when in truth no out there actually exists. We can see this more clearly if we pause to consider the idea of simulation. We've long had simulators, such as driving simulators, or flight simulators, or air traffic control simulators. We understand how they work. They're designed for specific tasks and they need to engage and immerse users only as much as the task at hand requires. Sometimes it requires relatively little immersion 
no more than a computer screen and a controller. Sometimes it requires much more, as when pilots sit in hydraulic flight simulators as part of their training, in order to experience the physicality of flying, as well as the intellectual difficulties of managing the controls. From this starting point, we can ask what strong VR is designed to simulate. We might, I think, describe strong virtual reality as an attempt at building a world simulator. Since all simulators are tools, and all these tools are designed for a purpose, and thus have a reason for existing, we might then ask what the agenda and purpose of a hypothetical world simulator would be, even if such a thing does not yet exist. The fact that strong VR does not exist and may never exist does not make it unimportant. Charles Sanders Peirce makes use of a category he calls the non-existent real, something that might not exist but can still satisfactorily serve as the basis of an inquiry. It might well be that even if strong VR proves technically impossible, the idea of it might prove valuable and the effects of that idea might prove culturally and politically important. I can think of four comparable ideas we might view as non-existent reals to demonstrate this process. We might insist that they are unreal and can never be made real, but nonetheless we have to acknowledge that they have had and continue to have profound importance on our culture and lives. These four examples are religion, time travel, the existence of other dimensions and teleportation. These unreal reals have served to inspire both artists and scientists. All four suggest questions that might form the basis of subsequent inquiries. They've mapped out fields of possibility. These in turn have triggered the production of both research and poetry. The results of these inquiries are definitely in themselves real, even though their existence sprang from contemplating a non-existent real. They have all become part of our individual phaneron and our cultural vocabulary. For example... If you approached somebody in the street and told them that you were a time traveller from the 50th century, they might not believe you. But the idea that your words conveyed would make a certain sort of sense to them. The same would apply if you claimed you were the son of God, or had just arrived from Dimension 12, or had teleported here from Zanzibar or Sydney. You wouldn't be believed, but your claim would be understood. Importantly, each of these involves a break in continuity, which might be why they're impossible. Teleportation, for example, involves going from here to there without passing through any of the places in between. It involves traversing geography in a discontinuous way. Peirce has claimed, as of others, that continuity is fundamental to our lived experience and our ability to understand the world arguing that the complexity of the conception of continuity is so great as to render it important wherever it occurs. Strong VR, were it ever to exist, would also involve a fundamental break in continuity. It would involve suddenly shifting our sense of presence out of this world and into another virtual world. This sense of presence is an extension of our awareness of the real and unreal, and the differences between them. To break continuity in this way, would leave us attempting awareness of the real and the unreal inside a simulated world. It's difficult to imagine how we could act on this without losing our bearings entirely. Given all this, 
How might we proceed to make sense of the idea of world simulators? Well, Peirce was explicit that whatever we know, we know only by its relations, and insofar as we know its relations. And indeed, he claimed that in reality, every fact is a relation. In this, he was in complete agreement with the Canadian media theorist Marshall McLuhan, who stated that objects are unobservable, only relationships amongst objects are observable. This gets to the heart of the matter. We will find it futile to look at simulated worlds as objects or realities, rather than as characteristic facets of the cultural production of repeatable relationships. Relationships we can look at as extended cultural dialogue. We might begin to discuss these dialogic relationships embedded in world simulators by noting these constitute a cool, low-definition medium. In this, as Marshall McLuhan noted, they're very different to movies, which are high-definition, low-participation media. The apparent similarities between the two, between movies and computer-generated environments, are themselves superficial and misleading. Peirce and McLuhan both point towards a literary critical approach to this process of reasoning. This approach begins by creating exploratory models and proceeds by discussing the reactions that these models engender. Peirce devised visual diagrams, arguing that the visual was the most highly developed sense. Weak VR environments, such as Second Life, can be viewed as elaborated visual diagrams, or more exactly, as a latticework of visual diagrams woven together but capable of being viewed discreetly from different perspectives. This kind of on-screen world, in quote marks, generates diagrammatic maps or texts best analysed as tools through tools of literary criticism. The objects on the screen form interpretable cultural markers, and the relationships between the users, the screen and the on-screen world can certainly be seen as paratextual. If we adopt this approach and start from here, we avoid the pitfalls involved in taking the product of dyadic relationships and externalising them into an as-if geography. We can now start talking about simulations in terms of their antecedents and their intended goals, in terms of analogies and diagrams, rather than ontologically dubious realities. We can now see how it makes to sense to begin our discussion with Morse code and why claims that everything has changed remain ahistorical distractions. From 2004 to 2010, I took part in a lengthy experiment in the self-described virtual world Second Life as part of my teaching and research. We entered Second Life to pursue genuine inquiry and soon realised that the students' reactions to entering the world were all visceral, whether positive or negative. They had strong emotional reactions. They had no interest in using what they found there rationally, with decorum or with restraint. We created a large island called Rosario and created a complex geography and history for it. In doing this, we found that the students divided into three recognisable groups in their approach to working in Rosario. The first group of new users chose a name that was as close as possible to their own. In this way, Josephine Potter might enter Second Life as Joe Pot and Tom Smith as Tom Smiler. This second group went a long way to create an avatar that resembled an ideal version of their real-world appearance, with her styles and clothings closely mirroring their own. They would give their avatar a backstory similar to their own. 
The second group created a name which they, around which they could construct an interesting narrative. They spent time modelling an avatar designed to bring to life the character they'd created. This character would have its own fictitious background and its own fictitious approach to Second Life. And the third group always constituted the tiny minority. They didn't see their avatar as a person in any sense at all. Rather, than they viewed their avatar as just another element in the world to play with. Their avatars never had constant appearances, switching between monsters, robots, spiders and complete invisibility. We regarded the first group as augmentists, because they seemed to see Second Life as an obvious extension of their first life, a way of augmenting it. We call the the second group immersionists because they use Second Life to throw themselves wholeheartedly into a new arena as somebody else. They regarded it as an entertaining but pointless role-playing game or a soap opera full of self-generated drama. Now, Clearly, these two groups had the potential for large-scale misunderstanding and, indeed, conflict occurred regularly. They exhibited incompatibilities in how they approached the world, how they acted towards other users, how they viewed the consequence of their actions and how they viewed the consequences of their interactions. Augmentists felt cautious and vulnerable and became affronted in real life if they felt their avatar being badly treated. They felt that their avatar was them, or a representative of them. Immersionists, on the other hand, viewed the world as an adult playground for playing adult versions of childhood games, cops and robbers, Barbie and Ken, the Avengers, whatever. There was mutual incomprehension between the groups. When an augmentist felt hurt or upset, the immersionists just puzzled about where the problem lay. From this observation, we drew and created a number of interesting experiments and drew some interesting findings. Firstly, the students were more sophisticated than we'd originally suspected. Many made an almost McLuhan-esque distinction between figure and ground. Some saw themselves in an immersive way while viewing the world itself augmentatively. Others moved around Second Life the opposite way, immersed in the world, but viewing themselves and their other avatars augmentatively. We mapped these different behaviour patterns and produced a series of interesting graphs, flowcharts and Venn diagrams. Secondly, we came to the realisation that logic and rational inquiry appear inherently two-dimensional. We organise our calendars, desktop displays, files and folders, spreadsheets and so on in two dimensions, as things on paper or as things on a flat desktop screen. 3D interfaces have never really worked on computers and calendars like Zenday, which nobody remembers, which attempted a 3D interface, are doomed to failure. We see logical relationships much more easily on a well-designed 2D interface. Our interaction with the externalised products of rational analysis, then, is dyadic, in Peirce's terms. We feel emotion, though, in 3D, and the English phrases we use to describe emotions indicate this. We talk of feeling close to somebody, looking down on somebody, needing our own space, feeling distanced from somebody. These, we realised, explain the failure of all the virtual classrooms and business showrooms in Second Life. They were based on a misunderstanding of what drew people there in the first place. Now, I mention these experiments here for several reasons. Firstly, they demonstrate where we can get to if, if we adopt a Persian approach to world simulation and see it as a diagrammatic experience, mapping real life onto a much less complex map that remains realistic enough for our own purposes.
Secondly, it shows that we can gather interesting results and draw interesting deductions from a weak VR world simulator if we approach it in this way. And thirdly, it demonstrates that the experience of immersion in a three-dimensional map occurs viscerally, that is, beneath the layer of logic that we imagine stands above brute emotion. And that raises a concluding question concerning the ways we might think about strong VR, the so-called metaverse, once we question what it is simulating and why. What if we've been dazzled by our shiny toys? What if companies like Meta are deliberately dazzling us with these toys? And what if these toys, once joined together like separate transformers, form a Trojan horse? I've spoken in other places about virtual reality, about how it affects people and about the idea that it may not be what it appears to be. And every time I speak to people about virtuality, they soon start to talk about helmets and prosthetics, and they worry about what will happen if being inside the world in the helmet proves addictive. But as we have established, there is no world inside the helmet. Like cyberspace, virtual reality does not exist, and the metaverse will not exist. This turns things inside out, pretending the relationships between people and their tools and between people and the images that their tools create amount to the discovery of a new world that persists as some kind of consensual hallucination, in William Gibson's phrase, in a way that somehow makes it real. While we tie ourselves in knots about this, something else is happening that might actually make all these claims true. Instead of a centralised strong VR... Many actors, including Meta, have begun to develop and deploy decentralised artefacts that appear as passive parts of our life world, but are in fact actively seeking to reshape our thoughts and emotions. Hidden as ground, they act as figures. Newspapers, for example, used to lay on a table as passive artefacts, unchanged by our interaction with them. Facebook, Amazon... Apple, Netflix and Google have devised artefacts that appear passive but act upon us as we interact with them. They seek to shape what we perceive and to learn from our history of interactions how to shape us better. Better here meaning how they can achieve their designers' goals more effectively. And as we know, their designers' goals have profit as a primary part of them. In our traditional lived-in reality, we know, roughly speaking, what to treat as figure and what to treat as ground. In a novel kind of world where agency hides, often unsuspected, we can no longer trust ourselves to be able to do that. If we live in a world in which we cannot parse its components, then we can no longer test its reality. If we suspect that parts of it have been deliberately created and are thus intentional and purposive, but we cannot trust ourselves to tell which parts, then we will start to live in a world of magic. We will live, in fact, in an increasingly virtual world from which we cannot withdraw consent. Deep fakes offer virtual reality, just as it's been promoted, but not in the way we expected. We expected helmets that acted as clear signs of entrance. Instead, we're getting bots that defy ontological recognition. According to The Guardian, deepfake videos can now be created using a machine learning technique called the Generative Adversarial Network, or a GAN. A graduate student, Ian Goodfellow, invented GANs in 2014 as a way to algorithmically generate new types of data out of existing datasets, 
For instance, again, can look at thousands of photos of Barack Obama and then produce a new photo that approximate these photos without being an exact copy of any of them, as if it had come up with an entirely new portrait of the former president not yet taken. GANs might also be used to generate new audio from existing audio or new text from existing text. It's a multi-use technology. Now, in a world infiltrated by undetectable deep fakes, we cannot step outside. We find ourselves in a world filled with camouflaged objects created and manipulated by hidden designers. We can no longer trust our sensory input as an increasing amount of aspects of our phaneron become imagined, felt, thought, desired, not by us, but by people who, for whatever reasons, benefit by creating our conceptual and perceptual worlds for us. The magnificent impossibility of virtual reality has begun to arrive, packed inside mass-produced Trojan horses, as part of a deliberately designed process of distraction. This version of VR, the so-called metaverse, the one that's being developed while we try to examine the one that will remain forever fiction, does not behave as advertised but it does contain all the components needed to infect us with the kind of vir virtualities from which we cannot escape. And this forms a political project. The Trojan horses have been cunningly designed to put us off the scent. They look like failures at what they purport to do, but they've already begun to prove a magnificent success at what they actually do. For reasons that will take another episode to explain, many of us appear ready to swap genuinely intersubjective human relationships for dyadic and me mechanistic ones. We started looking for empathy within purposive simulations whose goals and purposes do not lie with empathy at all. We face the danger of becoming lost, increasingly in Peirce's terms, mistaking the idioscopic for the senoscopic, the, the unreal for the real, at the price of losing our presence and with that the presence of others. To remind ourselves, if an object is of whatever character I or any person or persons will have it to be or imagine it to be, it is a fiction. Despite the fact Meta will encourage us to live inside the Metaverse, the Metaverse is a tool they're using against us and it is propagating a fiction. Thank you for listening. Now that you've heard the podcast please go to the website. There you'll find much more details about topics talked about, links to references, and much more. You can find the website at meow.net. That's M-I-A-A-W dot net. See you there.